We've been doing a series of lessons entitled Discovering the Mission of God. And for the last several weeks, we've been focusing on that third component of the gospel. What is the gospel? And one of the things that I wanted to do in this series of lessons is to help us understand exactly what that word means. It means good news. And, and oftentimes, if we're not careful, what we end up doing is we begin talking about a person's response to the good news without realizing that that person may never have heard what the new good news is. There are three components of the gospel. The good news, the response to the good news, and then the blessings or the benefits of the good news. Okay, So those three are what we're looking at. We're fixing to move into the second one. But to introduce the second one, I want us to go back and just look at an example. What was the good news that the early church preached? That simple. Now, let me remind you of the bullseye. Uh, Clyde calls this the target bullseye. You know, kind of looks like the target signal. But, but anyway, at the very heart of the gospel is one word. Jesus. And so if somebody were to ask you... What is this gospel that you keep talking about? There's a simple answer. Jesus. Would you say that with me? Jesus. Well, get, let that sink in. Who he is. God incarnate. Come into the world to do for us what we couldn't do. That's the heart of the gospel. The next circle you'll notice is Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. In other words, Jesus came, God incarnate, but he did that which we couldn't do for ourselves, which was to suffer, die, rise again, and defeat the forces of evil. And so there we see in that second circle what Jesus did for us. And then the third circle is the gospel of the kingdom of God, which is what Jesus set up in order to invite the rest of the world into this kingdom, into this relationship with God through him. That's what we've talked about for the last several weeks. And so what I want to do this morning is walk us through some examples of how early Christians presented this message, and it's all found in the book of Acts. Pentecost is coming up. Passover had happened a month and a half earlier. One of the things you need to remember is that in many ways, the Jewish calendar kind of mimics some of our calendar. Passover was what we do today celebrate as Easter. So remember back when Easter was. And then about a month and a half later came Pentecost, 50 days to be exact. Very similar to our Memorial Day in so many ways. And so if you can picture what happened back at Easter and then tomorrow's Memorial Day, you kind of get a picture of what the disciples were going through. Jesus was about to ascend back to heaven. He would do it a week before Passover. In the grave, three days. Among his disciples, 40 days. And then the last seven days, the apostles, notice here, are waiting in Jerusalem. Jesus simply said this, You go wait in Jerusalem until you receive the gift my Father promised. And then he talks about John the Baptist predicting the fact that God would send his Holy Spirit, that people would be baptized, immersed, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And so here's Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, all the apostles waiting in Jerusalem, wondering 
what in the world is going to happen. As they're waiting, they're praying, they replace Judas Iscariot, they get everything ready, and then on Pentecost morning, a very important feast day for the Jews. Jews had literally come from all over the world to be there in Jerusalem. Tens of thousands of them had poured into the city for this very important festival. And all at once, wind starts blowing. Except they're not feeling anything. It's a sound. I mean, it sounds like almost like a, you know, a, a tornado coming. And, and everybody's wondering, what in the world's going on? And if you can picture the apostles, early Pentecost morning, they're in this room, and they're going, what in the world is that noise? And it fills the house where they're at. It's filling the city of Jerusalem. And all at once, what looks like fire comes down and separates and begins to hover above each of their heads. As the promise of God, all the way back in the book of Joel, all the way back in the book of Ezekiel, scattered throughout the Old Testament, comes true. The promise of Jesus that had been given to them about two months earlier when he said, listen, that which has been with you shall be in you. And all at once, this incredible change takes place. The Spirit takes up residence in these apostles. Now, he enters the other disciples of Jesus as well. But among the twelve are giving these incredible abilities. Clarity of thought like they had never had. I mean, all at once, Peter, who didn't have a clue what Jesus was doing in dying on the cross, all at once now it makes all the sense in the world as the Holy Spirit begins to open their minds. People began to hear the sound and all at once, they began to rush. Evidently, the apostles had left the house, gone maybe to the steps. I don't know, Rodney, if they were in Solomon's Court, up in the temple, on the south steps of the temple as you're going up where you have all of those baptistries out there. I don't know where they were. But they gathered at a particular location, and all the people came rushing. I mean, a large crowd. We don't know how many, but I suspect in the thousands, maybe tens of thousands. And they want to know, what in the world Especially in the fact that they're listening to them speaking in their own language. I mean, people from Rome are listening to Latin. People from Egypt are listening to Coptic. People from Asia Minor are listening to the languages that would have been common there. I mean, all at once, everyone's listening to these guys speak. All of them Galileans in tongues, languages they had never studied. They wanted to know what in the world is going on. What does this mean? <coughs> Some of the people who are listening assume they're drunk. You know, if you don't understand a foreign language and somebody starts babbling in a foreign language, you might assume, uh-uh, they, they've done drank too much. And so Peter gets up and takes the lead. The others are speaking as well, but Peter takes the lead. And the first thing that Peter says is, let me tell you what's happening. First of all, we're not drunk. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. If you want to understand more about that, you need to go back and listen to uh, Wednesday night's lesson from Proverbs on, on the Bible and alcohol. I mean, new wine wouldn't get you drunk that quick. And so Peter says, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. It's not the wine. He says, instead, what it is is something that all of us have been expecting. Every Jew, listen to me, brothers and sisters, every Jew in the first century were anticipating 
or was anticipating this outpouring of the Spirit of God. They knew Joel. They had read Ezekiel. They knew what the prophet said. And so when he got up and said, listen, this is what Joel predicted would take place, they're all like, what? Look at what Peter says. The last days, he's quoting from Joel. God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And even on servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. That word prophesy means they'll preach a In this case, a new message, which contained incredible good news. Old, young, male, female, Here's this promise of God's Spirit coming upon all of His people and something amazing taking place. And so they're all listening at this point in time going, wow. And then verse 21. One of the most important passages that I think most of us miss. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. In Greek, it's curious. But, but in in. Aramaic, it would have been very different. In Hebrew, it would have been very different. So, how not? It's a word that all the Jews knew. Whoever calls on the name of Adonai. But what takes place in the next few minutes of this amazing sermon is that what Jews thought would happen when Yahweh came to visit is now going to take place through all Yahweh's representative. In other words, Yahweh is going to send an Adonai, a Lord. And so what had taken place in their expectations with Yahweh is now going to take place in someone named Jesus. And you've got to let that sink in. You mean now I call on Jesus of Nazareth? Yes. And what you have in the remaining, and it's just a few verses... I mean, Peter's sermon is just kind of truncated here in just a few verses. But watch how he develops it. Who is this Lord? Let me tell you who he is. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth. Y'all remember the various... What word did we say a while ago? Let's say it again. Jesus. Notice where he begins. Jesus of Nazareth. A way of identifying yourself back then. And then he goes on to talk about, listen... Y'all all know what he's done. You know the miracles he's performed. I mean, Jerusalem had been a buzz for weeks and weeks and weeks about this prophet from Galilee named Jesus. Everybody had heard about him raising a guy named Lazarus from the dead. Even the Sanhedrin had said, we've got to kill both Jesus and Lazarus. And so here you have Peter saying, you all know who he is and you all know what he's done. And at the very beginning, he begins with Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me on that. apologize for that. I need to turn away from the mic. I'll warn you next time, Ken. Sorry about that. Acts 2.23. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Peter finally got it. You see, if you go back to Mark and you read Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, you have Jesus over and over again saying, I've got to go suffer, I've got to die, on the third day I'll be raised again. And the text says over and over again that they didn't understand what he was talking about. And now with the presence of the Spirit, they know exactly what he's talking about. This had always been God's plan. Notice the language there. His foreknowledge. God had planned this from the creation of the world. 
It was his deliberate plan. And they're sitting there going, wow. And notice the plan. The plan was the very thing Jesus had said that the apostles couldn't get through their thick skulls. I doubt I could have at that time. Notice what he says. That you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it's impossible for death to keep its hold on him. You killed him with the help of Rome. You put him in a grave. But three days later he came out because death could not hold him. And guess what we have? We have the next circle in the bullseye. You see it? You start with Jesus. Then what do you move to? You move to the fact that he suffered, he died, he was raised again the third day. And watch what he does. David said about him, boy, the fact that he introduces David. You remember David, second king of Israel? I mean, a, a, a king who God made a very special promise. We'll look at that promise here in just a second. Notice what Peter says. David, everybody, boy, their ears perked up. Said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I'll not be shaken. That right hand is very important for what you're fixing to hear. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. And then you get this strange verse. My body also will rest in hope. What? Yeah. David says, I don't go to the grave hopeless. My body rests in hope. Why? Because you will not abandon me to Sheol, to the realm of the dead. Some translation says to the grave, but it's literally the realm of the dead. It's where the spirit goes when you die. In the New Testament, it's called Hades. And here's David saying, my spirit will not be abandoned there. God's got another plan. And by the way, this is a song. This is from the book of Psalms. It'd be like me getting up this morning and saying, I know. By the way, I thought that was the song you was leading. You know, you got up and started on that, and I'm like, okay, that's not the tune I was expecting. <laughs> I mean, we have these songs where you have the same words beginning. Everybody knew this song. And by the way, there wasn't another one in the songbook. And you will also not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you filled me with joy. Why? Because I know there's a future. And so notice Psalm 16, a song that they would sing in their worship services. And all of them are all at once going, whoa, now that makes sense. Now I know who this Holy One is. I mean, notice that language there. You will not let your Holy One. And Peter's going to say, by the way, he couldn't be talking about David. Look at the next line. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried in his tombs here right now. We know he's not, David was not talking about himself. So Peter moves to announce that. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised on oath, notice that language there, that he would place one of his descendants. There's the promise. All the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had said to David, listen, I'm going to establish your house forever, and one of your descendants will sit on your throne forever and ever. And here is Peter saying, God has now done it. Exactly what he promised David. And that's what David was talking about there in Psalm 16. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, the anointed one, the coming king, that he was not abound, uh, abandoned to the realm of dead, nor did his body. Three days, 
Did decay start? Yes. Was it reversed? Absolutely. Transformed into a resurrected body. And I love what Peter says. God has raised Jesus. This same descendant of David, he's raised him from the dead, and we're all witnesses. All of us have seen him. They touched him. They had eaten with him. They had walked with him. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, over 500 on one occasion had witnessed the risen Christ. There were plenty of witnesses that God had done what he always said he would do. And then look at the next part. Exalted to the right hand of God, he's received from the Father this promised Holy Spirit. It's poured out what you now see and hear. Notice the language there. Exalted to the right hand of God. Again, if you've heard me preach in the last year, you've heard me say this over and over again. Peter immediately goes to the most quoted passage in all the Old Testament. Psalm 110 verse 1. Most quoted passage of the entire Old Testament in the New Testament. For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to my Adonai, the very language there, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Which simply says that Jesus ascended back to heaven, took his place at the right hand of God on David's throne, where he's still reigning today, 2,000 years later. And so Peter ends his sermon by going back to that word Lord. Watch how he does it. This is from the voice translation because I love the way they translate it. Everyone in Israel should now realize with certainty that God has done. God has made Jesus both Lord, Adonai, Psalm 110 verse 1, and anointed king, Christos, the anointed one. You see, when we say Jesus Christ, we're literally saying Jesus the king. That's who he is. And that's who he became. And it's the same Jesus that you crucified. Now, I want you to notice something important as we look back. We began with Jesus. We went to his suffering. And then we went to the kingdom of God, of which he now sits at the right hand of God over. I mean, all three components. Boom, boom, boom in this sermon. And what's interesting is, is what you do when you read the rest of the book of Acts. Acts is always a book where you have different writers beginning with where people are. Which is where, where we need to begin. I mean, the ambassadors stand read from 2 Corinthians where you have Paul calling us ambassadors. We're these people who are now saying to the world, be reconciled with God. The ambassadors of Christ in the book of Acts knew their audience as well and began... Where they were. Watch two more quick examples because these are so powerful. Acts 8 27. Familiar story if you were raised in churches of Christ. If, if you weren't raised with a lot of Bible, it may be quite new. But there's a story in Acts 8 of, of an evangelist, a preacher of the good news named Philip. Philip's gone up to Samaria. He's preached up there. Then the Holy Spirit says, I need you to go down to the road that goes from Jerusalem down through Gaza into Egypt and then down to Ethiopia. So Philip does it. Takes off running. Why? Aren't you glad we don't have to preach the way they preached back then? I mean, I need you to do me a favor. What's that? I need you to go over to I-40 between Jackson and Memphis, so take off running. Woo! I'd be in trouble today. You know, I say, Lord, I'll be down there in about three weeks. Give me some time. Okay? 
So he takes off, and, and what he runs into is a eunuch. A eunuch is a man who cannot have children. Okay? That's what a eunuch is. People who served in, in palaces, men especially, well, men only, were always made, or oftentimes made eunuchs. And there was a reason for that having to do with the lineage of the next king. And so there was this Ethiopian eunuch, and he's a treasurer of Kandeki, uh, the queen of the Ethiopians. Now, we don't know if he's Jewish by birth. We don't know if he's Jewish by being converted as a proselyte. We don't know that. But he's been up to Jerusalem to worship. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, here's the problem. Eunuchs were not allowed in church. Eunuchs couldn't go to the assembly in Jerusalem. And so if you had a eunuch who was here today to worship, the eunuch would be out in the parking lot. Couldn't come in here against the law. And you're like, well, that's not fair. Yeah, had to do with Old Testament regulations. And so here's a man who drove all the way in his chariot to Jerusalem to worship God, but he couldn't even go into the temple. Couldn't go into the congregation of God's people. And he's on his way back home, and as he's going, he's a wealthy man. I mean, he's a treasurer of the queen of Ethiopia, and he's got the scroll of Isaiah. He's wealthy enough to own that, which would have been worth literally today tens of thousands of dollars. And he's reading from it, and Philip comes running up beside him. If you can imagine a guy in the chariot, and all at once he looks, and a man, you think Forrest Gump has come back from the dead. You know, I mean, here he comes, full plast, running next to the chariot. And he says to Philip, uh, says to the eunuch, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? And so Philip comes up, and here's what's fascinating. I can't prove what I'm going to tell you next. But I believe the evidence points this way. You see, I think perhaps where the eunuch had been reading earlier was from what we call Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, of course, is three chapters further than where he actually is reading at the time. But I want, I want to suggest that he had gone ahead and read something that caused him to go back in his Bible. Now remember, there's no chapters and verses in the first century. They're just reading a scroll. I want you to look at what Isaiah 56 says. Something that would have caught the attention of every eunuch in the ancient world. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs. Not a subject comes up very often. Who keep my Sabbaths, who chooses what pleases me, who holds fast to my covenant. Is there a candidate for this type of eunuch? Yes, he is the treasure of the queen of Ethiopia. And look at what Isaiah predicted. To them I'll give within my temple. Not without. You've always had to stand on the outside. No, God's now going to give you within the temple and within its walls a memorial. And guess what? This memorial and name is better than sons and daughters, which a eunuch could not have. You see, to a Jew, the first commandment God gave was to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, Genesis 1. And a eunuch couldn't do that. A eunuch would have no descendants. Couldn't have children. And all at once, here's a promise of a name better than descendants. I'll give them a name that will endure forever. How in the world will it endure forever when after the eunuch dies, there's no generations to follow? 
And so he's sitting there, I think, mulling over this. And he knows it has to do with some one, three chapters earlier in Isaiah 53. And that's where Philip picks up. You see, Isaiah 53 says something very similar. Look at what it says. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as the lamb before its shearers is silent, he couldn't open his mouth, and in his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. This is about Jesus, but look at the next line. Who can speak of his descendants? The Messiah would have no descendants. Eunuchs have no descendants. For his life was taken from the earth, very much the way the eunuch's life had been taken. And being made a eunuch. And so he wants to know, who is this guy? Is this guy the writer of the prophecy or is he talking about someone else? And look at verse 35. Then Philip began with that very passage and told him the good news. Guess where he began? Of Jesus. Just like Peter did. Now, very different. Peter's coming out of the Psalms. Philip's coming out of Isaiah. Both are beginning at the same process. It's all about Jesus. Watch the next one. Jesus, Apostle Paul, Acts 17. Paul, and being among the Gentiles is something he can't do. I mean, he's among Greeks, Epicureans, Stoics, all kinds of Gentiles. And the Gentiles, they don't read the Old Testament. They don't own Isaiah. They don't know the Psalms. They don't know the Hebrew Scriptures. And so how do you preach a sermon if you can't start by quoting Psalm 110 or Isaiah 53? Where do you go? Watch where he went. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers, they're, they're talking with Paul. And they said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Paul's in the marketplace there in Athens. He's trying to get an audience. And they're like, what in the world is he talking about? Look at what he's talking about. Because he was preaching Jesus. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And boy, they're like, what in the world and so they bring him to the Areopagus. In fact, more and more research is suggesting that he wasn't just brought, that he was actually maybe arrested. Areopagus is a, a justice center. It's where you're interrogated. You see, in Athens, you just didn't start teaching without a license. You had to have permission from the city. And here's Paul teaching, and, and so it appears that maybe they arrested him, they took him to the Areopagus, and they said, would you please explain what you're talking about? And what Paul does next is absolutely amazing. You see, he begins by talking about the Creator God. Greeks believed in a Creator God. And he began by talking about this God by referring to an unknown God that he had seen there in Athens. You see, the ancients oftentimes would have tragedies would occur. They didn't know if this came from Zeus, came from Mercury, came from Poseidon. Who brought this tragedy? And so oftentimes they would create an altar to the unknown God who had brought it in hopes of appeasing him. This is, by the way, an a, uh, altar to the unknown God found in Rome. This one was found in Rome. But evidently they had one in Athens as well. And so Paul begins by saying, let me tell you who this unknown God is. He's the creator God. And then look at what Paul does. And this God is actually not far from each one of us. And, and he starts quoting. But guess what he quotes? He, he doesn't quote Old Testament scripture. 
He quotes Greek philosophers, poets. I mean, he was a guy so educated, he said, I need to begin where they are. And so he began by saying, in him we live and move and have our being. Epimenides said this of Crete. Or even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Erastus had written that. You see, Paul did what Jesus always did. How do we start preaching the gospel? We preach the gospel by starting where people are. If we start where we are, we're going to miss them. But have you ever noticed that Jesus was always a master in saying, I tell you what, you come to get water at the well? John chapter 4. Can I tell you, as Garrett talked about this morning, of living water? Can I tell you about that? Or a man who's born blind, who no one had ever been able to open the eyes of. Jesus opens his eyes and says, by the way, now that he can see and you know that sight has to do with the light, he says, guess who the light of the world is? I am. Jesus always began with where people were. And from there, took them to the gospel. And if we're going to change the world, we've got to learn to do the same thing. Now, it always leads to Jesus through his suffering to the kingdom of God. It's always got to go that direction. But you start with where people are, and you lead them to Jesus. And that's where we want to take them. Next week, we'll talk about, okay, once people get to Jesus, what happens then? And what happens then is they've got to make a decision. And next week, we'll talk about that decision. Now, if you're today and you're ready to make a decision, Let me just go ahead and give you a spoiler alert, okay? It begins by believing the good news. Believing that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. He died for your sins. He was raised and is at the right hand of God. And now he calls you to follow him. And you begin that journey through baptism. If you need to do that, we're here to help you. Come right now. As together we stand and sing.